Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Mark Hostovsky, founder of Minoan. Minoan connects people with products in spaces that feel like home. This is a concept that he calls native retail. We discuss what's missing today when it comes to trying out and testing products, the intersection of e-commerce and retail and where Minoan sits, and this concept of native retail. Without further ado, here's Mark. Mark, thank you so much for joining me here. How are you? I'm great. Happy to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, well, thank you so much for taking the time. This is going to be a lot of fun chatting about native retail and Minoan. Oh, yes. What was your initial attraction to e-commerce and retail? Why did you want to work in this world? I was really more attracted to Jet.com than I was to retail, to be honest. So I was working at a company called CEB in sales, uh, selling research to banks, essentially. And a friend of mine was an early employee at Jet, and it introduced me to some of the early team there. And I was like, you know, I like startups. I'll go and interview and basically sat down with uh, Scott Hilton and Aaron O'Neill and some of the early Jet folks. And they were telling me about they painted this incredible vision of like, listen, Amazon is an incredible company, but they've built this whole infrastructure around getting you one product as quickly as possible. And the reality is the underlying economics of doing that are are expensive. And so we're building this model where we're going to allow people to build larger carts, delay shipping at scale. This will give us an economic advantage. And, you know, they just laid out this very compelling strategy and vision. And I pretty much left that conversation like went back to my job and I was like, Ad, how could I possibly <laughs> how could I possibly go back to selling research to banks when this there's this company that's working on something awesome? And so that's sort of how I got into it. But I've fallen in love with retail really since then. I just think it's it's so interesting. You know, I studied economics in school, and so you learn about things like price elasticity and macro and micro and supply and demand and how price setting works. And so working at a in retail and seeing how all these little transactions bubble up and how important pricing is, I think I, I love it. I could talk about it all day. Exactly, exactly. Now that's really cool. So, so then you ended up then working at Jet and then went through the entire acquisition through Walmart and worked for Walmart at the time. What were kind of your learnings at a fast-growing, scaling startup that was Jet, ultimately then being acquired by by maybe like Mister Corporation, right? In Walmart, what was that like? And also, I think what's also interesting too is. Walmart, obviously, a traditional retailer by trade, acquiring Jet, obviously wanting to become a lot more aggressive in e-commerce. Well, what was the kind of your, your learnings here? We kind of talk about like the intersections of retail and commerce. Yeah, I mean, Jet really was my first foray into startups. And I think I learned a lot from the founding team there, You know, particularly, I think, uh, Liza Landsman, who's now a general partner at NEA, Mark Laurie, who's doing a lot of stuff right now. Scott Hilton, who's you know, now the CEO of uh, Wonder, which is a, a new uh, startup in the food space. One thing I learned is the importance of pace and sort of h- how important hiring is and getting good people together. So, you know, Mark would say, 
you know, he, he calls this like hiring missionaries versus mercenaries. But I had just never been at a company that was getting so much done so quickly. And like, I ended up working at Jet and then looking back at my career before that. And I was like, man, I was a stick in the mud for like five years. I was moving so slowly. And so understanding the importance of pace and how quickly you can get things done. I mean, Jet from launch, 10 months after launch was doing $80 million a month. And then going to Walmart, for me, the, the biggest eye-opener is just how big they are. You know, you're talking about over $500 billion flowing through Walmart every single year. And so, again, Jet, I'm like, oh, wow, we went from, you know, zero to $80 million a month. Like, I feel like I'm, you know, in a big company. I got this nice P&L. And then you go to Walmart and, like, you know, the orders are placing at Walmart, the 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 numbers we're doing at Walmart were just on a totally different level. And that was really my first experience with brick and mortar retail, which was a big driver of why I believe in native retail and why I started Minoan. That's super cool. So did you always think that you wanted to be maybe an entrepreneur or when did you get the entrepreneurial bug when you were at Walmart? I always admired entrepreneurs. I love reading. I love listening to how I built this. I love reading books you know, biographies and autobiographies from founders. Um, I don't know if maybe before Jed, I, I, I maybe was unsure if I had, you know, what it took to really go out and start my own thing. But I always really admired founders and wished I could or wanted to. I think at Jed, I built a little bit of confidence in my ability to to execute. And then through Walmart, I was working in retail and I had this idea that I couldn't shake for like really almost a year I was like, I feel like the best product experiences, like they don't happen on screens. They don't happen on shelves. And like, I can't, like, this isn't it. There's got to be a way to do this. And I think it was sort of a combination of this nagging thought, some some confidence in that I had led a pretty large P&L. I had worked in retail where I felt comfortable making the leap, which is my second run. You know, I tried to start a company a few years after college called Taylor, which was like virtual tailoring, which I won't get into. That was my first run in with the entrepreneurial buzzsaw. I was like, man, this is a lot harder than, <laughs> you know, it's a lot harder than it looks from the outside. And so I think, you know, with Mano and I, I really felt like, I'm like, okay, I, I know, I have a good sense of like how this needs to be done and how to approach it. So what is native retail? And I guess what was, was there like a particular aha moment then you, that kind of led to Minoan and, and realized, Hey, I want to, Hey, this is going to be like my full-time, my full-time passion, my full-time gig, my everything. Yeah. Native retail is basically real world shoppable experiences without a salesperson over your shoulder, without scrolling through small images on a screen. It's about being in moments of use where you can actually use a product, see whether or not you like it, and then seamlessly integrating commerce in that moment where someone can buy a product in that moment of inspiration. So the example would be, you know, staying in an Airbnb, uh, sleeping on, let's say, a Casper mattress, and then after two, three nights of sleeping on this thing, you're like, man, I'm sleeping well. I'm waking up. I'm feeling rested. I like this thing. Native retail is about integrating commerce into those real world experiences. And the motivation for me was at Walmart, you know, when I was at Walmart, they were moving towards omni-channel ownership. So there's an e-commerce team and then a brick and mortar team and sort of moving them both under one P&L management structure. And so I managed the e-commerce side of, of 
you know, my division, but I worked very closely with the team in Bentonville on the store side. And, you know, when I was comparing the types of experiences we were having with products or my team was having as buyers, you're having these incredibly rich moments with products. And so fitness was one of the categories that I managed. And so like when we're getting fitness products in, we're testing them for functionality, durability, programming. Is it comfortable? How much space does it take up? You know, and then we're like, this is great. This is a great product. Our customers are going to love this product. Let's bring it into inventory. And then by the time our customers are engaging or interacting with that product, that very rich experience we've had is now distilled down to like, you know, two small images on a screen and some copy. Or we're taking, you know, this experience and we're putting it in a cardboard box and we're cramming it on a shelf. We're putting 20 other products around them. And we're just really diluting the richness of, of the product experience and really like not allowing the product to shine. Like this, these products are designed to do things, to solve jobs, so to speak, you know, in the real world. And I felt like we weren't really accomplishing that for, for our customers in e-commerce or in, uh, or in stores. And so that was, that was sort of the big aha moment that drove me to create Minoan. I can totally see that. And I think that's certainly one of the issues that we've talked about on the show a lot when it comes to e-commerce. How do you, especially for, I mean, obviously for, for physical products, how do you show what that product can do without being able to feel, touch, and do it? And at the same time, the source side, how do you make sure that this product is not just another product on the shelf? And so that's constantly challenges not from both sides of the scale. I mean, obviously you have like in-store demos. Those are a lot more expensive and you do a lot more to get in-store demos. My favorite experiences on retail growing up was like, at, you know, Brookstone and like Sharper Image where you're able to like try out these like new gadgets, new products and, and what have you. And so, but this is cool. So when you were first thinking about native retail and kind of how you can tie in when you experience a product, you know, anywhere that's really maybe outside, I guess anywhere meaning outside of that traditional retail experience, right? Outside of where you actually would buy the product because you're looking at the intersection of obviously the physical, you testing out the product and functionality yourself, but also there's the e-commerce portion too, where you actually trace back that product and you buy it online. What was kind of going through your mind when you first thought about starting Minoan? Omnichannel is this big you know, word that we like to throw around, around in retail or the intersection of digital and physical or like, I think, physical. I've seen like a lot of words that sort of describe this concept of like, how do we blend the two? And so when you look at just like root causing this stuff, it's like, why do people like shopping in stores? And so when you look at like survey data there, there's two reasons far and away that people like shopping in stores. One is the ability to touch and feel and use a product. Um, that was like 87%, I think, based on the survey I saw. And then number two right behind it is the ability to leave with the product, you know, the immediacy of being able to leave the store with it. And so it's like, okay, that's what people really value about stores. And it's like, well, then on the e-commerce side, what's really valuable about e-commerce and digital retail experiences? And it's like, you know, the seamless integration of media and content, the data capture, the ability to offer completely dynamic experiences to the user who's who's on that screen. And so as I was thinking about like, well, what is the best way to combine those two elements? Like, how do you take the best of physical retail? How do you take the best of e-commerce? It's really about putting products in environments where people can use them, can see if they like them. And there's lots of data that shows that those environments convert very highly. Like I, I went to go see John Foley, the founder of Peloton, did a live How I Built This in New York. 
and I and this was when I was like just toying with the idea. I'm like, do I just leave? You know, do I leave Walmart and really go after this thing? You know, it's a scary jump. I remember him saying, Guy Ross was like, well, why do you keep opening these stores? You, you know, you're in the Short Hills Mall. You're in all these malls. But it seems like a core part of your strategy. And John looks at him. He says. Because I'm telling you, when I can get someone on the bike, pedaling, listening to the music in the class, he's like, it's 50-50, 50-50 whether or not they're going to buy the bike right then and there. And those moments of use are just incredibly valuable. And we want to create them in native environments and not sacrifice the greatest parts of e-commerce, you know, capturing clicks, conversion, customer pathing, integrating media and content, providing instructional, you know, when you think about native retail, if you have like a mattress, for example, the way that you would talk about that mattress when it's physically in front of someone is different than the way you should talk about it if it's actually being represented abstractly on a screen and it's actually sitting in a warehouse somewhere. Instead of saying, you know, this mattress is good for back sleepers and side sleepers, it's soft, it's comfortable, you know, everyone says that. You might create content that says, you know, we want you to go and lie in this mattress, lie on your back. Okay, now we're over on your side. Okay, notice that no matter how you're positioned, you know, this is cradling your body really well. well that's because we use this specific foam technology that does XYZ. Okay, now go sit on the edge of the mattress. Notice how it doesn't sink down. That's because we've, we've used this technology to provide really good edge support. You know, the content is a little more instructional and the way you talk about the product is a little bit different. Yeah, there are benefits to both, benefits to digital, there's benefits to the real world. And, you know, we're trying to combine the best of both worlds. No, totally. I'm so glad you brought up that John Foley episode. That's one of my favorites on on how I built this huge, huge how I built this fan. But of course, makes sense why he would open stores and to obviously have people try on the product. You know, as he said, it was a 50-50 what, once they tried it and kind of have that experience. It was a 50-50 uh, percent chance that they actually might purchase the product right there on the spot. But with you and, and, and Minoan, it's not in store right? It's almost like the anti-store. And so how then do you think about developing on the supply side, like partnerships and where actually people would kind of have these experiences? I think one of our biggest advantages is that these experiences don't happen in stores because, I mean, for a few reasons, stores are expensive. I mean, that's another thing I learned at Walmart. I mean, the reason why everyone measures a store based on dollar per square foot is because there's a lot of fixed costs you got to cover. There's a lease, there's build out costs, there's a lot of inventory you know, there's salespeople. And so that's why you get all these products that are crammed and crammed on shelves in big in big retail. And then even for Peloton, I mean, those leases are not cheap. Luckily, they have a high AUR product and the math works out. But for us, I think not having stores is, it, it frees us to optimize around the customer and that customer experience rather than optimizing around dollar per square foot or something like that. And the way we think about what spaces could become native shoppable experiences is really that any product that exists in the physical world has a corresponding native ecosystem. You know, like skis and ski boots are used on a mountain. Office equipment is used in co-working spaces. Linens and mattresses are used in hotels. Automobiles are used in car rentals. You know, that's a native experience for the automotive category where it's like, all right, like I'm interested in this vehicle. I'm, I'm going to rent it for, for four or five days, see how, see how it fits, see how I like it, and then I can make my decision. And so when we're looking at the types of partnerships, you know, where, where are the right spaces to create these experiences, it's sort of aligning the category 
and the products in those categories with the space where they would natively be used. And there's a lot of different spaces, you know, there's lots of different environments you could go after. We're really focused right now on the short-term rental space. So like Airbnbs, Verbos, and products that would go in those experiences that are useful to the to the guest. And so it's everything from linens, electronics, you know, speaker systems, appliances in the kitchen, uh, fitness equipment. Um, you, you cast a pretty broad net with that starting point. Since one of your target markets is looking at short-term rentals uh, for Airbnb, what's your process? Are you contacting owners and kind of being very scrappy in, in terms of trying to build partnerships with them and then looking at what, what products they have and seeing, okay, let's attach that to a digital imprint or, or you know, be able to uh, shop e-commerce? Or are you also providing products to the actual Airbnbs? We're doing a little bit of both. And so I think that, you know, the way that brands can view our platform is we're essentially a B2B to C. And so it's like, you know, when you sign up on Minoan, we're going to help sell your products into all these. We actually work with also 50 boutique hotels. So it's not just short-term rentals, but hospitality generally. You know, we're going to help sell you into all these hospitality spaces, B2B sales. And then we're going to turn every single one of these spaces basically into a showroom for your brand where the guests can interact with them. And if they like them, you know, buy the ones that they like. The way that we're focused on growth right now is we're really focused on the spaces side of things. You know, when we look at, it's a complicated business, you know, like we do have multiple stakeholders that we need to think about. There's spaces, there's brands, there's guests. And so when you sort of look at the flywheel, you're like, okay, where is the power really generated here? When we did that analysis, we're like, we, we need to go out and get a lot of spaces to sign up. And we are doing sort of, you know, we're still really early. Like we just closed our seed round, which we're, you know, we're very happy with, but like we're in chapter one of like a thousand here. And so we're definitely doing all the scrappy, <laughs> finding Facebook groups, reaching out in Reddit communities, any way that we can get in front of these hosts we want to. And, and the message we have for them is basically like, you guys are four-walled influencers and you're creating such special moments between people and brands within these spaces. And you know that should change the way you look at how you furnish your space and how you think about curating your space. And you can use us to do that. Because the reality is that on their end, the way that these hosts are furnishing their spaces is it's like they're paying full retail, which are like you shouldn't be paying full retail because you're creating such value in these spaces. They're ordering, you know, if they're ordering from 20 different brands, it's happening on 20 different websites. There's 20 different returns processes, 20 different credit card inputs. And so we're simplifying 20 different trackings. I mean, tracking when you're ordering stuff from a bunch of brands, tracking in and of itself is like a nightmare. And so what we've done is we've built a lot of tools to simplify that, make that easier, basically save them time and money, and then bring brands in that'll make a difference in the in the guest experience. And then if guests or sorry, and then if hosts work with brands that they really like, I mean, this is how we started working with Parachute. We had a few hosts that were like, we love Parachute Linens, they're incredible. I'm like, all right, we should reach out to them and talk to them. And so a lot of our brand acquisition is actually driven by what hosts are telling us they like for now. You know, in the early days. That's great. I mean, it's not quite the same, but it just, as we talk about shopping natively and, you know, really kind of avoiding the store per se and that kind of experience, it just reminds me of when I talked to Jake Liu, who's the founder of uh, Outer. Oh, we love Jake. Yeah, we work with them. Oh, okay, awesome, awesome, awesome. I-, I thought that his story really resonated just because 
instead of doing that kind of traditional retail shop and, you know, where you can see and experience the outdoor furniture of outer, instead he actually turned to his community or, or turned to customers and said, hey, if you actually host maybe these like little showings in your backyard and you actually have like your customer's backyard becoming the showroom, obviously it's different because it's a single product versus you're more of a marketplace. But I think it's just quite interesting, this kind of parallel that people are really open to trying out product in kind of untraditional ways. Jake was one of the first brands we actually started working with at Minoan because uh, I just reached out to him. I was like, I'm working on something that I feel like you're going to really relate to based on how you've structured your business. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, it's a brilliant strategy. And just like you said, you know, what Outer's doing is like a verticalized way where they're mobilizing their own customers into showrooms, you know, we're taking the horizontal approach where it's like, you know, it's not just the outdoor furniture. You got a lot of stuff in here that is valuable. And, and let's be the one platform where all of these brands can, can be integrated and made a part of that experience in a digital first way. Of course, since it is a marketplace that you're building, right? How did you solve from the very beginning, like the the classic chicken or the egg problem, which is, you know, the supply side and getting all these maybe brands on board and as well as maybe it's Airbnb hosts and partners. You know, as you can say, it's quite a complicated scenario when it comes to stakeholders and also would love to kind of unpack that. And as well as obviously like the customer itself and people that would actually be um, experiencing these products and hopefully purchasing them. Yeah, I started with the brands, you know, this maybe not as strategic. (laughs) I started with brands just because I knew retail really well, and I knew that brands were struggling to acquire customers. And I was very confident in my ability to sort of talk to these big brands and talk about what we're going to do and the vision and how it works for them and, and have a very compelling value proposition. And so we started with the brands. And then once we felt like we had good coverage, we're like, all right, we got, we got a decent collective of brands. Then we started talking to uh, spaces. What was the unique in terms of like the value prop when you first were onboarding brands? What was the unique value? Like, cause you didn't have any locations yet. Is that right? Yeah, we didn't. I mean, there's a little bit of like, <laughs> we had like two or three big hotels with nice logos that gave us enough credibility. <laughs> But you're sort of like inching, you know, but partnerships up on right. both sides. Right. Okay. But the value proposition for, for the brands was basically, you know, we're like, look at your category. You probably have 10x the competitive set that you did a decade ago. And if they're all digitally native, you know, you're all likely targeting the same channels, Facebook and Google. Those are auction-based ecosystems driving up prices. Um and it's like, how are you getting in front of people? How are you? It's hard. How are you getting in front of people? And so sort of pit positioning this new way of getting in front of people and saying, you know, we work with these handful of hotels. We could get you into these hotels. You know, we worked at the Harbor House Inn. We still work with them, which had a Michelin star, still has a Michelin star restaurant in outside Mendocino overlooking the Pacific Ocean. You know, we kind of use these really euphoric, nice hotels as like a carrot, be like, you know, wouldn't this be a nice place for your product to be in? And then use that to sign up the brands. And then once we had all the brands, we'd go to more spaces and be like, look at all these brands that want to be shoppable, that want to be in your spaces. You know, we can, we can help introduce them at a really strong economics for you. And then um, kind of wiggled our way out of that initial <laughs> cold start from now we work with over 160 brands and a network of thousands of, of spaces. And we're still, I mean, it, 
as far as penetration goes, it's still very, very, very low, but at least it's enough of a, there's enough of a group on both sides for, for momentum to really start build building. Is it hard to, I mean, I know that you're obviously working with boutique hotels. I'd imagine hotels are maybe ideal just because it's, it's maybe one account per se. And, and there's just a lot of then, um, space that you can use, um, with obviously, um, lots of rooms. Is it, is it harder on the Airbnb the Airbnb side since you're working with individual owners or have you also contacted Airbnb to try to do like an official partnership with, with them or, or kind of what's the story there? Yeah, not yet. So, so Airbnbs are definitely very fragmented, which we've, you know, we learned pretty quickly early on, but it's also very community driven. I mean, one of the great things, you know, the team at Airbnb did a really good job of building a community driven business because most people we work with that have an Airbnb know other people with Airbnbs. And so that's sort of been a nice, you know, once we got a core group of Airbnbs that really loved the product and started telling their friends, that was sort of a nice way to penetrate this fragmented industry that's like kind of tough to get in touch with. There are other aggregators you can play with in the space, like vacation management companies or property rental groups, or, you know, there there are groups you can work with that have networks of their own within Airbnb that help you acquire folks into the network. But hotels are definitely, when you look at, like, when you just think about an impression basis and the value of that, like a 200-room hotel is going to have close to a million product impressions a year. When you think about the different products in the spaces, the number of guests, the, the touch points, and even calling those impressions is, like, not a fair analog because, like, the average digital impression is like a second, you know, and these moments in reality are lasting. Cause you're actually experiencing the products. You're in the same room as them. So yeah, yeah it's like a three day engagement really is what, you know, we would probably call it. But, you know, for us, we've decided to focus on short term rentals first because uh, some of the problems we're helping them solve around like bringing in products at, uh, you know, helping them save money on stuff that they're buying, helping give them a system to to order and reorder, you know, the soaps and the shampoos. And there's there's lots of stuff that these hosts are ordering on a regular basis, you know, like a, a throw pillow gets trashed or all of a sudden you're like, you know, and I just got a negative review about someone who was working from our kitchen table for three days and said their back was killing them. Like we need an office chair. You know, there's a lot of things that come up that they need to buy. And so our portal of making it really easy for them to buy stuff, you know, the value to, to the host is very, very, very high. As we work with uh, hotels, like they usually have procurement teams. They're still ordering stuff via Excel spreadsheets. They're still like sending email POs. There's still a lot there where we're like, okay, we need some, there, there's, there's some technology that can be built to make this a whole lot easier. But our core like initial product is much more valuable to the hosts. And so we're focusing on expanding within that sort of like group, continuing to improve the product, continuing to do like things that are really important to hotels, for example, would be integrations with like accounting systems, like a NetSuite, you know, so they can keep track of inventory and stuff like that. And it's like for a host, like they don't, you know, most of them, like they don't need that level of, of tech work. And so as the product gets better and grows and improves, it sort of opens up these other spaces, other native spaces that, where this is relevant, yeah, and we'll, we'll continue to go from there. Also, you know, your previous employer, uh, Walmart, Target, and others have been really, uh, like, we, we talk about this on the show all the time, been pretty aggressive bringing in D2C brands into the retail shops and, and stores. How do you think about 
that in terms of the way of Minoan, since you are trying to attract D2C brands, do you think of that as a potential competitor or this is maybe such a unique you know, marketing channel, channel for the brand where it actually, we don't think about that as competitive at, at all? It's a good question. That doesn't worry me, you know, because I because I understand like why D2C brands that have built a really strong brand and have like a strong following, you know, Target and Walmart, like if they can get them in stores, it helps elevate the credibility of the store and can help them bring people in. I think technically, you know, like any sale is, it's like, you know, it could have come through us, could have gone, could have gone somewhere else, but we don't really think about it. If we accomplish our vision, the idea would be that you start to hear the term native retail just as often as you hear the term, you know, brick and mortar or the term e-commerce. Yeah, because um, I think that it has its own sort of place. But certainly, like, if someone's in the market for a mattress or something and they're thinking about the channels they can go to, you know, Currently, Minoan's not a place where like, oh, you, you're you interested in sleeping on like a Casper mattress? Well, we work with a, you know, a hotel. We work with a hotel in Whitefish, Montana, if you want to fly out there and sleep on it, you know, for a few nights, see if you really like it. Our, our network isn't at the size where that's convenient yet. Now, when you get to the point where you have millions and millions of native real world shoppable experiences, let's say like... In Manhattan, there's 600,000 shoppable experiences powered by Minoan. We know the exact products, the inventory, where they're sitting. You can envision a world where someone could go to Minoan and say, like, hey, I'm really interested in checking out a Dyson hairdryer. And before I spend the 400 bucks online or go to a store and, like, look at a box of one, I, I kind of want to try it out myself. And Minoan could say, okay, well, we have – you know, we have a hundred locations within Manhattan where there's a Dyson hairdryer available. Actually, these six are within a five minute walk. You know, do you want to go and, you know, before you buy it online or before you just go and spend money, do you want to go and invest a little bit of time to see how you like it and try it out first, you know, before you pull the trigger on a purchase? In that world where Minoan really becomes the everywhere store, where you're lighting up all these dormant showrooms and empowering these these types of experiences uh then i then i start to look at sort of what the stores are doing as destinations maybe as competitive but you know i'm in like i'm talking about you know 10 year from now yeah hopefully sooner but you know we, we got a lot of stuff that we got to figure out and nail before we we get there what are right now within obviously native retail what you're doing what are the different points of engagement that you're measuring so we're looking at on the sort of shoppable experiences side, because we do really have two parts of the business. There's one part of the business where we're selling products into the spaces, which is sort of standard furnishing and procurement. On the shoppable spaces side, we are really looking at, you know, at the very top of the funnel of all the spaces we've signed, how many guests are flowing through those spaces. You know, those are almost like eligible visits, you know. Uh, then the click below that is how many of those convert to actually visitors where they go into the shop, you know, they scan the QR code, they click on the email that talks about the shopability, they go into the experience, they engage. And then the level below that, I think, you know, for us that we're looking at is just conversion. So how many of those are actually ordering and checking out? And there's lots of other things. I mean, the nice thing about, you know, my co-founder Shobit, who's the technical side of 
of the duo, has built a career around uh, building events-based infrastructures with large retailers and, and you know, setting the right events to understand consumer behavior and, and what to measure. And so looking at a lot of stuff like how much time do they spend on a brand page, when they click into an item page, do they engage with a video? Do they, you know, do they leave a review? Do they do X, Y, Z? But right now we're just kind of looking at eligible visitors or, or guests, visits the next rung down, and then customers the rung below that. You have an amazing group of investor partners. What was it like fundraising and raising venture capital? And what was maybe almost, uh, I mean, obviously you've brought on tremendous partners, but um, what were maybe some of the challenges too? It was a great learning experience. I mean, I think I went into this sort of naively being like, oh, fundraising's like dating, you know? It's like, oh, like we'll talk, we'll see like if you like me, do I like you? Maybe we'll have a second date. And I think my what I realized early on is it's not like that at all. It's sales. I mean, it's really solution selling. And so I think like most founders, I mean, other founders I've talked about this experience, like when I first started pitching 30-minute meeting, I'm spending like 25 of those minutes like talking about Minoan and the vision and what we believe in and why this is the future. And then you're leaving like five minutes at the end for questions, which I think that's just how I thought you're supposed to do it. But when anyone who's worked in sales, my, I, my first job actually went before I went to jet, I was working in sales. The first, one of the early things you learn is that the best salespeople are, are actually really good listeners. <laughs> they're, they're not always the talkers. In fact, rarely are they the talkers. They're the ones who who are really efficient at getting the value prop out in the first five minutes of the call. And then the 25 minutes after that of this chess match of objection handling, driving to next steps, understanding perception. And, and so my journey in fundraising was sort of like, I was like, wait a minute, this is sales. I need to like go back into like the sales part of my brain and, and start thinking about, it's like driving scarcity, you know, all these things that are just part of human nature, social proof. It's just part of that part of that game. But my experience was initially not great. <laughs> you know. And then I think we really, obviously the business picked up some traction, which always helps and, and sort of like found my, I guess, voice, so to speak, in the way that I wanted to approach these meetings. And we're very happy with how, you know, this, the seed round panned out. Whenever I talk to, to founders, I'm like, you should really try and get to your pitch, quote unquote pitch, as quickly as possible. Yeah, because it's like, that's not the important part. The important part is getting their reaction. What do they dig into? And and answering those questions. Because what I didn't realize is that that person then goes into a meeting with their partners and then they need to pitch the idea. And they're going to get all sorts of questions. And if they haven't had a chance to ask you those questions, get your answers, like, they're definitely not going to do a better job than you know you would. What happened to me and which happens to a lot of founders is, you think you have a good pitch, man, I feel so good. I talked for 30 minutes straight, whatever. <laughs> I feel really good about that pitch. And then you get feedback and it's like, you know, we we passed because of, you know, the TAM or defensibility or, you know, there's lots of, lots of, in the, in the ladder of proof, lots of things that an investor needs to believe to, to make that bet. And you'll be like, well, wait a minute, we didn't even talk about that. Like, well, I, I can, let me talk about that. But it's too late. You know, the meeting happened. Once that meeting happens, if, if the partners don't agree, like if they say no, in my experience, it's like, okay, on to the next one in the list. And yeah, and so the conversational element of really, I mean, conversation, it's also like fact finding, like dig in, you know, why wouldn't they invest? What concerns do they have? Like really use that time to de-risk your business in their eyes 
so that they can't think, you know, it's like, I can't think of any more reasons why this wouldn't, you know, you know this wouldn't work. I, I think that became very helpful to me. And when, and we started having a lot more success when I made that pivot. No, that's great. That's great. I think that that was certainly will be helpful to uh, some listeners who are fundraising. What's one book that inspired you personally and one that inspired you professionally? Personally, there's a book called Why Buddhism is True, which like it's it sounds like it's like a religious book, but it's not. It's really a book about evolutionary psychology. And it's by Robert Wright. And it's just a very eye-opening book about how like our brain deludes us, you know, and sometimes we suffer in imagination more than we do in reality. And I think really impactful for me and just sort of building like mental toughness and awareness and realizing that like the way that I see the world and every interaction is very different than the way other people see it. And um, I like that book and I recommend it a lot. Professionally, you know, Clayton Christensen, best known for The Innovator's Dilemma, which is great work of his, uh, before he passed away, unfortunately, he published a book called Competing Against Luck, which is all about sort of jobs theory and how you should view your product. And he really pushes product innovators to think about like, Customers don't buy your product. They hire your product to solve a job. And so think about like, what is the job to be done? And so that sort of professionally led me on a path of like, you know, what is the job to be done with like a speaker? Well, the job to be done is to create a mood with music, you know, and like, what is the job to be done for a mattress? The job to be done is to deliver a good night's sleep. And all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, but like, we don't let customers understand how good these products are at solving the job to be done in e-commerce or in stores. You know, they they can't. They can if they can actually use them themselves, which sort of, you know, part of what spurred me to really go out and, again, build Minoan, which is why I think that would be the professional uh, one for me. Mark, thank you so much for your time. This is so much fun. Yeah, it's great. Uh, great chat with you and hope your listeners are, are interested in what we're working on. And there you have it. It was great chatting with Mark. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.